Well, this morning, if you're following uh, in the notes that we are on page 7, we're about to begin our study of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the collapse or the fall of Babylon. And what I thought we would do is uh, turn back for just a moment, and, and I say back, you know, here in Daniels, go back in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, the last verse of 44, and uh, the first couple of verses of chapter 45. This is nothing short of extraordinary. This is one of those parts of the Bible that give significant proof to the validity, uh, veracity, veracity means truthfulness of prophecy. Isaiah wrote his prophecy about 700 B.C. We are talking about an event that occurred in 539 B.C. Now, did, did you hear what I just said? Mm-hmm. Isaiah writes his prophecy about 700 B.C. That's when the book of Isaiah is written, about 700 B.C. Chapter 5 is occurring in 539 B.C. And Isaiah prophesies this event. Isaiah prophesies the rise of Cyrus the Great. Now, the reason that is significant is he, and of course he is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's speaking for God, but 700 B.C., God names this leader. Cyrus. I mean, Persia didn't even exist in 700 BC. So this is just another illustration of one of the significant points of the Bible. God is sovereign. God is in control of things. And so in your note packet on page 24, now it's it's you know, not huge, but there is a map of the Persian Empire. And I, I just draw your attention to that because what, what the book of Daniel is doing for us in chapter 4 is summarizing the transition in the ancient world from a Babylonian world to a Persian world. Do you understand that sentence? And it occurs in an event. And this event that's recorded for us in chapter 5 of Daniel is, a, is an attested event in lots of other biblical, excuse me, lots of other historical sources or non-biblical or extra-biblical sources. I mean, this is an event, there's no dispute about the accuracy of chapter 5. The historical accuracy of chapter 5 is validated by many, many, many sources. What is, what is important for you and me as we study the Bible is that God prophesied through Isaiah the prophet the rise of the Persian Empire and the fact that under Cyrus the Great, Cyrus would issue an edict allowing the Jews to go back to their homeland. Now, all those sentences that I'm just studying, do they make sense to you? So if you look with me now at uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 45... Uh, and into chapter 45. Isaiah 44, verse 28, into uh, chapter 45. This is God speaking. Now, let me, uh, I don't know if this is helpful or even important, but let me just quickly review a couple of things about Isaiah. The first 35 chapters of Isaiah are on God's judgment on all the nations in the ancient world. It's all of them. And then 36 through 39 is a very historical section. It's where King Hezekiah and all that stuff occurs. And then chapter 40 through the end of the book, chapter 66. So chapter 40 through 66, God is focusing on what he's going to do with Judah, what he's going to do with the the Jews. And so it's it's a very significant part of that account. What is he going to do with the Jews? In verse 28 of chapter 44, we read, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, I I don't know if you're following the importance of that. 
Isaiah is writing this in 700 BC. The captivity in Babylon hasn't even occurred yet. And so what God is doing through Isaiah in chapter 45, 44 and into 45 is saying, I'm going to raise up a ruler who's going to let you go back. So even before it has occurred, he is telling them, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm raising up a king. His name is Cyrus. He names him 160 years before he does it. He names him. He's going to let you go back and rebuild your city. Who is in control of history? I mean, it's just, this, is, this is stunning for the liberal critic. They don't know what to do with a verse like this. And so they say, they call, well, this is Deutero-Isaiah. This is written after the event. It's the, only way, it's the only way they can get around it. And then into chapter 45, thus says the Lord, and the Lord there is Yahweh, to Cyrus is anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will be shut. I will go before you, make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze, cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness. I mean, I'm going to stop there because the point is, what is, what is the language of this? I will go before you, Cyrus, and prepare the way for you because you're going to do what I want you to do. Excuse me, that's what chapter verse... I'm just reading from Isaiah 44, verse 28. 28. Okay. Uh, for, yeah, into chapter 45. Okay, thank you. So it's just, again, I, I want to start our study of, of, of Daniel chapter 5 with this remarkable passage from Isaiah. 160 years before it occurs, long, long before Cyrus was even born, God is saying, I'm going to raise up a man. He's going to be a king. He's going to be Cyrus. And he is going to do what I want him to do. What's the main thing he's going to do? He's going to issue a decree, which is going to allow the Jews to go back to the land. And it's just, it's just staggering. Here you see another illustration of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that there are in the Bible of our God who is in control of history. He is accomplishing what he accomplishes, even if he uses evil rulers. So the empire of Persia is the empire that will destroy the Babylonian empire. And chapter 5 of the book of Daniel is the account of that destruction. When Cyrus's armies attack Babel, the capital of, the, of Babylonia, Babylon, and destroy it. Now as I said a, a moment ago, in the chronicles of Cyrus, in the chronicles of Nabonidus, these events that are recorded in chapter 5 are also recorded. So this isn't just a fairy tale. This is history. It's valid, verifiable history. And the Bible is not saying something that is contradictory to history. It is simply validating what history tells us from the perspective of God. Now, a lot of introductory stuff here. So Cyrus is the king of Persia, prophesied in I 44 and 45, of being the agent God will use to subdue the nations and allow the Jews to go back. By the way, in the British Museum, there is it's something called the Cyrus Cylinder. And there's a copy of it in the first floor of the United Nations in New York. At Cyrus Cylinder, it's just what it is, is the account of the decree of Cyrus Letting the Jews go back to their land, and it's just, it's just, it's so, it's exciting. I get really excited. It's the actual. It's the actual. There are many of those. We have multiple copies of Cyrus's edict, but that's one of the most famous. It's exactly the wording is exactly what is in the Book of Ezra because mm -hmm. Ezra records the decree of Cyrus as well. So here, here again, you see these major players in the in, in ancient history. God is accomplishing his purpose. Yeah. Okay? At the time when Isaiah was prophesizing that, uh, the Jews were still in the land. Mm -hmm. And how did they feel about it? It's about that? 700 B.C. And how did they respond to that prophecy that they're going to be kicked out? And Manasseh had Isaiah sawed in half. That's a good thing. So, I mean, I'm just telling you, you know, Isaiah's prophecies were not widely accepted. And the tradition has that King Manasseh, the king of Judah, uh, had him sawed in half. Just because of his prophecies. Yeah, because of his prophecies. Yeah. 
Because no. Manasseh was, I don't know how much you remember some of the kings of Judah, but Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. He was a horrible king. And God takes him to Babylon. And it's really fascinating because Manasseh repents. He repents of his sin and his idolatry. And so, I mean, it's kind of God never gives up on somebody, no matter how wicked they are. But that's not, that doesn't have anything to do with our study. So quit knocking these bunny trails. No more questions. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Fred. Well, this is a bunny trail. I was just thinking about how, you know, we don't know what we're going to name our child. Mm. You know, the, the mother and the father, and they go, well, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they've got this myriad of names. Yeah. It's that name. Yeah, God. I mean, it isn't just I'm going to raise up a, a great ruler who's going to do this. Here is his name, a hundred and sixty years before he does it. It's just, and there are other instances in the Bible where you, you have a name of somebody prophesied, but this one was Cyrus because Cyrus was one of the most powerful men of the ancient world. If you ever go, and we can't do that right now, but if you go ever go to Iran, Iran, his his tomb is there. In Iran, it's a major, major, well, I don't know about now because so much upheaval in that part of the world, but it is a major tourist attraction, the tomb of Cyrus. That's one of the things you always have to remember, and again, this has nothing to do with our lesson, chapter 5 of Daniel, but Iran, the country of Iran today, what we call Iran, is Persia. And Persia, the per- people who live in Iran are not Arabs, they're Persians. And you have to remember that when you look at the geopolitical things of 2015 in the ancient world, in the, in the Middle East. You have the Persians in the East, Iran, and then you have the Arabs, and then over here in Israel you have the Jews. And, and the, you know, it's, it's kind of really important. And historically, the Persians and the Mesopotamia have always fought one another. Always. I mean, it's always fought one another. And so when the United States overthrew Saddam Hussein in, 19, in 2003, we erased the major balance against Iran. Because Saddam Hussein, not, I'm not a fan of Saddam Hussein, all I'm saying is he was the balance to Iran. And we got rid of him. Now Iran is just running all over the, the Middle East. It's, and that agreement, which our, our president uh, uh, agreed to is going to allow Iran to even further extend its influence. It's a significant, these are very significant, these ancient rivalries that go back to the world which we're reading about are still in existence today. They haven't been done away with. Chapter 5. Now, on the board I wrote something else. Belshazzar is the king but he is really a prince. He's the second one of the kingdom. His father is Nabonidus. Nabonidus is not mentioned in this verse, excuse me, in this chapter. He is not on the scene. He's down building a city in Arabia it's called Tima. He's building a city down there. So his son is now ruling in his place. You follow me? He's a young, arrogant, untested, belligerent, bombastic, Boisterous idiot. I mean, he really is. Evil. I mean, he's he is incredibly incompetent. His father's down in Arabia building this great port city, and he leaves his son because at that point, it seemed like things are secure. Which again was not wise because Persia was on the march, and Persia. Now, this this is really really important. We know this from the extra biblical sources. When, when Daniel 5 is occurring, the Persian armies have surrounded Babylon. They have laid siege to the city. Do you understand what I mean by laid siege? Does that make sense? They've surrounded the city. Now, Babylon is a very difficult city to conquer because the Euphrates River runs right through it, and it, its walls were enormous. It seemingly was impregnable. So what, what Belshazzar does in calling this feast is to mock the Persians. You may be outside our walls, but you're never going to conquer us. And we're just going to have a party in here. We're going to just make fun of you. And in addition, he mocks the Jews by bringing all the implements that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had brought to Babylon 
and they're going to have a drunken orgy with the Persians outside the walls. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, and the concubines might drink from them. And they brought the golden vessels taken out of the temple, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. The king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, I hope you understand the incredible irony, but also cynicism that's in these verses. Here you have Belshazzar, this rather incompetent young son of Nabonidus, having a drunken orgy with the Persians on the other side of the wall, praising, worshiping these dead gods. And part of this mocking is he brings the vessels from Jerusalem. That's what they're drinking from. Verse 5, suddenly. The New American Standard is what I'm reading from. That's how it translates. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began to knock, began knocking together. Now, that verse 6 is very graphic. What word would you use to describe Belshazzar's demeanor at this point? Fear. Fear. Terror. This guy is out of control in terms of his fear. And, I mean, I mean, I would understand why, wouldn't you? I mean, the walls of the ancient world, um, and, these, in, and this was true in private homes as well as in palaces, they were, like, whitewashed. They were whitewashed plaster. And so this hand, there's no arm or no body, it's just a hand, is writing on that white. So it's very distinguishable. And, you know, that would be a rather terrifying thing to see, wouldn't it, you know? And you just remember all that is going on here. He is mocking God. That's intentional. There may be, there may be in back of this just the stuff that he had heard about Yahweh, about his grandfather, because his grandfather is Nebuchadnezzar, and all that stuff. So he's not only mocking Persia, he's mocking Yahweh. And the contrast, as he mocks him, they're worshiping these dead gods, Okay, God says it's time for you to be called to account. And that's what God does here. And the king called aloud to bring into conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. Now, you've seen those phrases before. That's, there's never, these were Nebuchadnezzar's advisors. This is the court. The king spoke. Any man who can read this inscription and explain this interpretation to me will be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold, and have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. Third ruler, Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second, he would be the third one. That's what that means. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then Belshazzar, greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Then the queen entered the banquet. Now, we're not sure who this is, whether this is his wife or whether it's Nabonidus' wife, which would be his mother. You follow me? Then the queen entered because of the words of the kings and nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face grow pale. No worries. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, now it's his grandfather. That was very typical. You would just refer to any descendant as your father. The king appointed him chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. Now presumably, we are to infer here, Belshazzar didn't know Daniel. He hadn't have him in his court. That makes sense. That's logical to conclude that. 
But she remembers him. And she says, you got to get that guy here. This is because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel. Verse 12 is a nice summary of the credentials of Daniel. This is his resume. Now, that's sort of be funny. Usually it brings a laugh, but not with you guys. All right. This is just a summary of his reputation. Let Daniel now be summoned, verse 12 says, and he'll declare the interpretation. Verse 13. And Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah, meaning his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar? Now I heard about you, that a spirit of God is in you, and illumination, insight, extraordinary wisdom been found in you. Just now the wise men and conjurers were brought in before me that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation known, but they could not declare interpretation. But I personally have heard about you, verse 16, that you are able to give interpretation to solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple, wear a necklace of gold around your head, your neck, and you will have the authority to serve the rule of the kingdom. Verse 17, I love Daniel's response. Keep your gifts for yourself. It's kind of an insult, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Keep your gifts. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription and make the interpretation known to him. All right, now, before we look at Daniel's comments and interpretation, are there any, are there any questions either about the historical background of this or... What has gone on here with Belshazzar? Everybody with me? This is a device of mine to use so I can get a sip of coffee. That's it. I choose to yeah. call the queen his mother because she would have known. It, it would seem, I, I, I agree with you, it, we, it's hard, we can't make a decision from the text, but it seems reasonable that this is probably his mother. It's questionable whether his wife would yeah. have that knowledge. That's exactly right. That's exactly. That's, that's just a reasonable inference to make there. Yeah, that's right. But then, why wouldn't his wife, his mother, then be with his father? Well, Daryl, um, it is not unusual. It's even that's true today. But it's not unusual for the wives of kings to not be with their husband, because usually you saw this with. They had multiple concubines and sometimes multiple wives. But um, so there's usually marriages, to some extent that's been true in, in the modern world too, but marriages among royalty are arranged marriages. If love occurs, it follows marriage. It does not precede the marriage. So it's, it's probably not a, lot of, not a lot of love and loyalty to Nabonidus from the queen. She is there because she, she, she has wealth, she has power, she has privilege, but not necessarily. I mean, I, I read a biography, a three-volume biography of Winston Churchill a couple of years ago. My wife got it for me for Christmas. And Churchill, you know, even before he became prime minister, traveled a lot. And Clementine rarely traveled with him. She would take her vacations on her own. I mean, that's just... You know, it's, I, I was shocked by that, but that is very typical of royalty. Uh, the queen and the king, or the prime minister, is where they take separate vacations. You know, Queen Elizabeth II, the reigning royal monarch, she has her own separate bedroom. Now, obviously, they have a lot of children, so that wasn't always the case. But, I mean, that's just, you know, royalties like that. So, so let's go on. If, yes, John. Question about yeah. Nabonidus. You yeah. look at the map here. Tima, T-E-M-A, is is the connection to what today would be Yemen, the very southern part of the, of the peninsula of Arabia, which controlled, uh, which controlled access to the Indian Ocean and the sea. So it was really, Arabia was a very, because there, there were two things going on there. One, there was a massive caravan trading, series of trading routes all over Arabia. And the 
the connections then that they would have to the port cities would control all of the water trade to the east, what you and I today would know as India and China and so on. So Arabia, the, the desert, there, and there wasn't, they didn't know about oil yet or anything like that, but the desert was very, very important for controlling the, the, the caravan trade routes. Solomon, when Solomon was king, now that's in the 900s, when Solomon was king, he had major, major control of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, he, didn't, he didn't own it, but he had arrangements and agreements with it because that was the key, because he had significant trade with the East. And that's why the Queen of Sheba, Sheba is modern Yemen, very southern part. She just couldn't believe what she was hearing about Solomon's wealth. That can't, that can't be true. So you know what she did. She went up to visit him. Which is not, so that's the really the that's really what's going on there. All right, now let's look at Daniel's words here. They're very instructive. What is the name of the city that he was with? Tima, T E M A, T E M A. It's on the map there on page twenty-four. O King, the Most High God. Now that that title should be familiar to you. It's been used through the Book of Daniel. Granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, i.e. your grandfather. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him and all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him, whoever he wished he killed, whomever he wished he spared, whomever he wished he elevated, whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. And he was given grass to eat like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he sets over it whomever he wishes. Now that's not new material to you. That's what we studied last week. That's chapter 4. So... We are assuming that Belshazzar didn't know much about this. Or he knew it and chose to ignore it. And Daniel is now focusing on the most important thing about your grandfather. God gave him his power. God took away that power. God restored that power. He is the most high God. Now, Verse 22 and 23 are the application of that truth to Belshazzar's life. Yet you, verse 22, his son Belshazzar, it's really his grandson, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. So whether he really knew it and, and understood it and had been taught it, or whether now he knows it. You should have known this, Belshazzar. Verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles and your, your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them and have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you not see, hear, or understand. In other words, they're idols. But the God in his hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. What does that last statement mean? But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways. What does that mean? God in Yeah. Life breath. He gave you life. You, you are in existence because of him and your ways. Again, I mean, this is just extraordinary. These verses are just extraordinary verses. Your grandfather learned a lesson, but you have not. So, in, <laughs> you, you, you really wonder what Belshazzar was thinking as he processed this, but the Bible doesn't tell us. 
Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. So in other words, what you saw and what's written on that wall is from God. Now this, verse 25, this is the inscription that was written out. Mini, mini, teko, yufarshan. Clear. No, it's hard. This is the interpretation of the message. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Eupharshin, or Perez, Eupharshin is plural. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So if you were to summarize what Mini, Mini, Tekel, Eupharshin means, summarize it this way. Now, Belshazzar, God has weighed you in a balance, found you wanting, and you are going to lose your kingdom to the Persian Empire. Now, the Medes and the Persians, when Cyrus consolidated his rule, he took the Mede kingdom, which is to the north of Persia, and joined them together. What's called Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia, or the Median Persian Empire. And so that's what the text is saying. So it's historically remarkable. And there are many, many accounts coming out of the ancient world of this event, of the armies of Cyrus conquering Babylonia. What Daniel chapter 5 does is it gives us Yahweh's perspective of this. It is because you, Belshazzar, have defied and mocked the God who gave you life and the God who gave you your rule. You have been weighed, found wanting. You're going to lose it all. So, why isn't he just an innocent bystander? Who, who's the he there? Belshazzar. I mean, who, why, why would he know any of this necessarily? And why would he take seriously the, the use of these implements that were used? Well, I think it's... Um, I think it's a, an insight into really, Fred, how wicked Belshazzar is. I mean, how intentional he is in, in mocking the things that probably were fairly well known about the Jewish exiles and about their God and so on. I mean, certainly that you can't have decrees like Nebuchadnezzar issued without the kingdom knowing those things. So um, I don't think he's in, I'm not sure what you meant by an innocent bystander exactly, but he is, he is a man who is using the power that he had as the king of Babylonia to mock the true God, and don't forget, in the same time, to mock the Persians. I mean, he is intentionally mocking the Persians as well. But from, from the perspective of the book of Daniel, he is, he is mocking the one true God. And you go back to that verse, who gave you life, and who gave you your rule. And he who gave you life and gave you rule is going to take away both from you tonight. And October the 12th, 539 B.C., Belshazzar was murdered by the Persians. They killed him. As soon as they came into the kingdom, went right for Belshazzar and killed him. I mean, uh, he lost it all. And the reason that the... the, the uh, the insightful reason that Daniel 5 tells us is because he was mocking the one true God. And he, and he knew it. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think we are to conclude that. Yes, Fred. This is a willful, intentional, that is, on Belshazzar's part. I don't know if it's obvious from the, from the verse, the introductory verses, or your comment at the beginning of the, the session, that, that he was aware of Jewish culture, of Jewish... Um, theology and to, to an extent I mean to yeah, an yeah, extent no, yeah I, I mean I don't know yeah and so so he wasn't in a vacuum he wasn't like some in some outpost where he would know nothing about it yeah that, if I, I think so because well, I, I think about us today you know and say well I mean this book uh, yeah it's nice I've heard about it there's churches around they were a Yes. 
Yes, yeah. Now you, um, you, you have a principle in the New Testament, and the principle is you are accountable for the amount of light you receive, the amount of revelation, the amount of truth you receive. If you live in the United States of America, how much truth about the one true God is there? Is it available? Yes. I mean, it's Bibles are everywhere. Television has messages. Radio has messages. I mean, you just, yeah, I mean, you have, people have the opportunity to hear the truth. People hear the truth. But generally speaking, and this is a very broad stroke statement, um, there is not that response to the truth. There's that. In some cases, mocking. In some cases, it's just a nonchalant, apathetic complacency. I'm not really sweating this. I'm the captain of my ship, my life. And that's one of the, 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 the millennial generation. You know that phrase, don't you, millennials? Millennial generation is a generation that deeply committed to the value of personal autonomy. And the personal autonomy means they are not committed to institutions. And that is marketing people and business are really aware of that because that's very, very important now. And the stuff that we have, like this dumb thing I carry around, allows and feeds that autonomy. I really don't need... I don't need institutions, I don't need authority, and I certainly don't need God. I am in control of my life, and that's the way I like it. Now that is a very broad, I mean, obviously there are many, many exceptions to that, uh, but it's, it's really significant, and it's one of the real challenges in, in the United States right now. Um, because... With, with the general affluence and technology that we have, to really communicate the message, you need God. What do you mean I need God? Now, I'll tip my hat. I'm not an atheist. I believe in the spiritual world. This is what the millennial tells us. But this personal God of the Bible, I'm glad that works for you, but that's not for me. Mm-hmm. And they feel they have the authority to say that. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I wanted to say in regards about God, you can go to uh, God, uh, Google that up. Bible is, and you can get eight, six different versions of the whole Bible, mm-hmm. free. Oh sure. Download it. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So you can listen to your Bible while you, on the driving, for free now. The Bibles. In CDs, oh, that's yeah, amazing. Well, that's what I mean. It's it's there, but it's a the the attitude, broadly speaking, the attitude of the millennial generation is a major challenge. Next weekend, I'm doing a conference out in the rural. It's called the Central Nebraska Bible Conference, and I haven't done that for a long time. But they wanted me to preach on revival, which I haven't done that for quite a while. So I, I've been working on it all week, but. Uh, Revival basically begins, we've had four major revivals in the United States in our history, but revival comes from the church. It doesn't come from government. It doesn't come from business. It comes from the church. So when we talk about revival, we're talking about renewal in the church. That's really what we're talking about. Is that us? That, and the church is, is the body of Christ. It's people. Yes. I mean, it's the institution, the structures and all that stuff, but I mean, it's people. And uh, anyway, so, but the, the, pardon? We're commanded. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it becomes something then, it's an individual personal challenge for each one of us, but it's also a challenge then for our body, the local body, the churches that we're part of. What four were you saying has happened so far? There's four of them? Four of them, mm -hmm. Which ones are those? Now this that is a real bunny trail, Tom. All right, I'll do, real quick, really quickly. The first Great Awakening in Colonial America, and that's it's roughly the 1730s and 40s. Then the Second Great Awakening, which is the first couple decades of the 1800s. Then the 
I won't call it the Third Awakening, but the Third Revival, which begins in 1857 and goes on through into the 1880s. That's where, and Moody is a part of that. And then the, the fourth major awakening is in the 1950s. What and, was it? Hmm? World War. Well, no, that'd be after World War. That'd be yeah, after I mean, World War II is over. But it's uh, uh, and it it was a, that's when Billy Graham's okay. mass evangelism. But you had uh, you had a significant eight. This is an amazing. This is an amazing statistic. But in the 1950s, on a Sunday morning, 80 percent of Americans were going to church. 80 percent. Huh? Oh, yeah, I know. Now in America, that's right, it's less than 20. And you go to Europe, it's about 3%, Western Europe. So, I mean, it's, it has radically changed. And, and in the 1950s, uh, Dwight David Eisenhower comes to Christ when he is president. He's the only president in the United States to be baptized while in office. And he is the one who uh, you know, added, in God we trust, to the Pledge of Allegiance, in God we trust uh, on our God. currency. And that kind of under God, excuse me, to our two of the Pledge of Allegiance, and I mean, so I mean, those kind of things were really important. And part of it too was that's the Cold War's beginning, and you were battling atheistic communism. You know what I mean? And it was really, who are we? We know who they are, and who are we? And that uh, that's just we've lost all that. Now the danger in America is. This, this autonomy of the millennial generation is sending the message, I don't really need God. But if I have got it, one writer has called it, it's a moralistic therapeutic deism. That's the religion of the millennials. Moralistic, there is a morality, but it's therapeutic, it's all about me, and it's deistic. My God, there's, there's a God, and there's a God who is ultimately up there, but we don't really know an awful lot about him. You know, the deistic God comes out of the Enlightenment. He created everything, then set it up to work on perfect natural law and leaves. He's up there, but, you know, and that's the kind of God of the millennial generation. There's a God. They're not atheist, but it's a God that meets their needs. But the problem is most of the awakenings happens with disasters and, you know, very bad stress to everybody. You know, you can see in the video. Often, that, often that's the case. Yeah. Which is not good, you know. People have to hit bottom to walk up, you know. Sometimes, yeah. Andrew? Um, myself working uh, uh, for this company in the marketing department, market, there's, yeah, and you're exactly right. I think there's kind of, if I may comment, just a cool opportunity with this millennial generation it is. right now, which is um, they're finding that autonomy is extremely lonely. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily reaching out to institutions, as it were, uh, but there is this whole new uh, or a revamped concept of community. Mm -hmm. And so people are joining communities, and I think that started with kind of that autonomous community, but they're realizing, just we're seeing that there's just this intense loneliness, personal loneliness, even yeah. when reaching out online. There and is. so getting together, you see, I mean, even in Omaha, you see it's not necessarily faith revivals, but it's community revivals. That's right. And Benson and Blackstone and yeah. stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. What, if they are reaching out, what communities are they reaching out to? And my question on, on you know, I don't know if you number awakenings differently than revivals, but what, I'm going I'm to load this, what Bible-believing church is going to start this revival or awakening? You know, I don't think it's any single church or single, right. because every one of those may, and there were other great revivals. In 1904, the Great Welsh Revival was massive. Uh, late 1700s, the Great Revival of Wesley Brothers in England, which was massive, massive. Uh, the Indonesian Revival in the 1960s, I mean, there are many, many. They are the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who sovereignly chooses. You know, I don't mean to to make that sound super spiritual, but it is the work of God's spirit. But it, it is all, every one of those major revivals was, one of the precursors was prayer, significant prayer. There really was. God, things are really in a mess here. In the early colonial period in the 1700s, 
they'd lost the reason why they came to the New World. And uh, it was really, it was kind of a mess. And people really started intensely praying. And uh, you can't understand the American Revolution if you don't understand the First Great Awakening. I mean, those two are inextricably linked. And it's so important to teach that history correctly. It isn't just about political liberty. It was about religious liberty. The freedom to worship God. Because the British Empire was trying to impose the Anglican Church on a, you know, a, a, a set of, or 13 of them, were religious diversity, because the Reformation and all of its expressions came to, to the New World. It was all over. And so you had people of all different religious groups. They were all Christian groups. But, and so to come in and oppose a state church, everybody said, well, we don't, we're not going to tolerate that. You can't do that. And I mean, those kinds of things, you can't understand the American Mazar for independence if you don't factor that stuff in. Well, now we are really way off of Daniel chapter 5, but these are, uh, this is the hope that you and I should be praying for. God did it four times in our history. Could he do it again in America? Oh, yeah. You can't sit there and say, no, he wouldn't do that. You can't say that. And in, in the history of Israel, you read in the Old Testament, there were great revivals. King Hezekiah, King Josiah, great revivals. And yet, you know, God could do it again. And it's going to start with you and it's going to start with me. One, one, uh, one individual said revival is a new act of obedience to the Lord Jesus. It's obedient. New act of obedience. It's obedient. Oh, it's a life of obedience to the Lord. Look at what happens in verse 30 and 31. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. I already told you. We have, there are many, 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 many examples in the histories of this period. Belshazzar was murdered by the Persians. Verse 31, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age 62. Now, who is Darius? Now, Cyrus is the king of Medo-Persia. And he divided his empire into segments. And Darius is given the rule over this part of his kingdom. So you had Cyrus and you had Darius. You follow me? So Darius, the Mede, Medo-Persian empire, Darius is a Mede. He is given authority over this part of, of the empire. He would be like a governor. He would be like a governor. Another name for him, and it doesn't matter, you won't know, it doesn't mean anything. I have that in your notes, is Guberu. We have uh, multiple extra-biblical accounts of, of him. Now, this is really important because it is going to be Cyrus. This is 539 B.C. when Babylon is conquered and Belshazzar is murdered by the Persians. Within a couple of weeks, Cyrus is going to issue the decree to allow the Jews to go back to their kingdom, i.e. Judah, rebuild their temple, their city, Jerusalem, and their temple at the expense of the Persians. The Persian Empire is going to pay for this. And that is all detailed for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the decree of Cyrus to allow them to go back is in the book of Ezra. It's quoted there. We have, we have an account. It's exactly, it's exactly word for word what's in the Cyrus cylinder that is in the British Museum. I mean, I'm just saying, these are not, these are not well, this is just biblical stuff. No, no, no. This is verifiable, major historical yes. documents. So this is a very exciting time in human history. It's a transition from one great empire to another great empire. This is the demise of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Empire. So it's in a period of major transition in the ancient world. And Daniel's right in the middle of all this. Isn't that sort of neat? Okay. All right. So now with Daniel chapter 5 behind us, now the question is, this is a big question, what's going to happen to Daniel? And what's going to happen to those other Jewish exiles now that Persia controls them? Well, that's what chapter 6 is about. Because chapter 6 is the last chapter 
in the account of da- in Daniel's life that's in the book. But this time, Daniel is a very old man. He's probably about his mid-80s. And he is serving the king of Persia. And he has a role similar to what he had in, in the Babylonian. He's like a prime minister. And you're going to find the same thing. The other leaders of the kingdom are jealous of Daniel. And so Daniel chapter 6 is that, you know, you learn this in Sunday school. This is the lion's den. This is the lion's den story. But what is really important about the lion's den story is the reaction of the king of Persia or the governor of Persia. That's what's really important. Okay? Is this where they start writing in Aramaic? Uh, Actually, the first six, seven chapters of Daniel are in Aramaic. So we're in Aramaic here. Okay, in a reverse to uh, Hebrew. Hebrew in chapter 8. Chapter 8 goes back to Hebrew. That's right. Now, because Aramaic was the, the court language of Babylonia and the court language of Persia. I mean, be, because that was the language that everybody knew. Now, what they would speak in the court to one another would have been Persian, but the language of the decrees, the language of the court, was, was Aramaic. All right, now, any, any other questions here? Because, yeah, Joel. I don't know if this is really relevant, but so how many kings did Daniel serve? Daniel serve? Well, he would have served Nebuchadnezzar yeah. first, then Nebuchadnezzar's son, uh, who we know almost nothing about, and then Belshazzar. Then he's going to serve Darius, the governor, and, and Cyrus. So four major kings, that's right. Yes, sorry. I had, uh, on chapter 5, they, they uh, used God's name in, in uh, plural instead of singular. Was that just a fad back then, that plural this and plural that, or it was God instead of God? Well, yeah, in verse 23, they're, they're the idols. They're the idols of the Babylonian Empire, not the one true God. They're, they're the idols. They're gods. worshiping the gods of silver, gold, etc. The yeah. The, yeah, right. Israel comes in after that when they went back to Jerusalem, and he's going to be like ushering in a revival within the Jewish community with reminding them of the Bible and stuff? That's right. So... If that's true, why, you know, it seems like Daniel and all those, you know, prophets who already know about the Bible. So why there was some kind of a misconception about the Bible in Israel? Why, why they needed Israel to usher in the Bible? It seems like they already know all this stuff. Well, the, the thing that is, is important about Ezra and Nehemiah, because the Nehemiah and Ezra work together, and we know that from the book of Nehemiah, but in chapter 8 of the book of, of Nehemiah, you have the great revival led by Ezra. You have to remember a couple of things. This is really important. The temple, when they, were in the, when they were in captivity, the temple had been destroyed. There was no sacrifice system. You know, all of those things are gone. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple has been rebuilt. The city has been rebuilt. The walls around the city, so it's now secure. And so now they are the leaders. Now what do we do? We've reinstituted the sacrificial system and the priesthood is now functioning again. But what the people are not familiar with is the word of God. And so what Ezra does is Ezra begins reading. It tells in chapter 8 on the outside the water gate, which is in the very southwestern, southeastern corner of Temple Mount. He begins to read. And he reads for hours and hours and hours. And the text tells us that the Levites are going among the people, making sure that they understand and interpreting what he is reading to them. He's built, there's a big platform, and he's built, and he's reading this to them. And as this is an unoriginal thought with me, now the Jewish people have returned to Jerusalem and Judah under the Persian Empire. They're not ruling themselves, they are no longer people just of the commandments and of the sacrificial system. They are now people of the book. People of the book. And Ezra Ezra establishes that. And that is really important because the one thing the exile did for the Jewish people is it cured them of their idolatry. 
They never go back to idolatry. Amen. Yeah. So, so Ezra kind of ushered in the religious identity, and the Persian had them establish their political identity, their political establishment. Yes, in a way, that's right. That's right. And he did that under the auspices of the Persian Empire. They wanted him to do that. Ezra did that. Yeah, the, the Persian Empire wanted Ezra and Nehemiah to do that. Now, there was a political reason for that. Yeah, what is that? They wanted that as a buffer state to Egypt. Because the great challenger to Persian rule was Egypt. So Judah is a nice buffer state to Egypt. And that's exactly why Rome wanted the province of Judea. It was a buffer state against the Parthians. Now, that we're way off the subject. But it's really important because, you see, then that helps us to understand during the intertestamental period why the Pharisees became so important. Because the Pharisees kept saying, we must be people of the book. Because if we do not mean loyal to the commandments in the book, God will send us into exile again. So in that 400-year period, they went from a very positive, significant group of people keeping the people of Israel focused on the, the word of God into a highly legalistic 612 commandments you must keep to merit the favor of Yahweh. And if you yeah. don't, you know, that, that's very different. So, yeah, that's a, Ezra and Nehemiah's revival are very, very important. That's a very important revival because it got them back to the book. Not, not because they didn't rule themselves. What was their identity? We are people of the book. How many books was that in that? Well, well, by the time, well, by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you would have uh, everything but the uh, post-exilic prophets which would be Zechariah, Malachi, and uh, Haggai. Okay. You know, everything else had been written. They had all that. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Wow. All right, now, <laughs> any other questions? Uh, this is good. We got on some bunny trails, but I hope it was good. <laughs> Chapter 5 is really, it's a very important historical event. It's the transition of two great empires, the demise of one and the rise of another one. And it is under the Persian Empire that the Jews go back and reestablish their kingdom, but not independent. They're not ruling themselves. That doesn't happen until 1948, which could be important. I think it is important, but anyway. Chapter 6 is next week's assignment. This is a very, very important chapter. It's the problem with Chapter 6 is it's one of those really, it's like the the fiery furnace of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is stuff you learn in Sunday school. I'd like you to read it again as we always, as, as we've asked you to do each one. But I'd like you to answer a couple questions as you read this. Why do these Persian leaders take out after Daniel? Because they want to get him. They want to get him on some trumped up charges. They've got to get Daniel out of the picture. Why? That's yeah. That's the question. Don't answer it now. You're yes. going to read. I want you to read it. Okay. And and okay. Now, the other thing I want you to, as you read this, is focus on the character of Darius. This is Guru. This is the governor. This is number two guy in the empire. Cyrus is number one. This is number two guy in the empire. What's his attitude toward Daniel? Process that as you read. What's his attitude toward Daniel? And then I want you to read very carefully his decree in verse 26. Like Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian king, Darius the Cyrus ruler, uh, the Persian ruler, issues a similar decree. See if you can find the five things he says about Daniel's God there in that decree. There are five key statements he declares. Mm -hmm. See if you can identify those five. So that's your assignment. We'll study that chapter. I'll have a little flannel graph presentation. <laughs> that's when I was in Sunday school as a little boy. That's when I first heard of this story. And you don't even know what flannel graphs are. Yes, I Maybe do. some of you do. I don't know. <laughs> that's what Sunday school teachers used to use before chalkboards, PowerPoints, whiteboards, and everything else. Flannel graphs. Yeah, I know. It's, it's ancient history. So. Let me pray here. Father, we're thankful for the Bible. We're thankful that we, too, are called to be people of the book. We are called to be people who understand your revelation to us in the 66 books of the Bible. We take them seriously. 
They're not just made up stories. These are inspired words from you. Chapter 5, which we studied this morning, is a history. It's valid history. It is verified in many ways. But what it does is it gives us your perspective of Belshazzar, arrogant, defiant hubris, a man who defied you, mocked you, and you brought him down. The agent you used was Cyrus, whom you had prophesied in Isaiah 44 and 45, 160 years before the event. You even named him. You are the Lord of history. You are the sovereign God, and you are accomplishing your purposes. Many times, maybe most of the time, we don't even understand exactly what you're doing. But the Bible gives us the evidence that we need that you're trustworthy. Amen. We trust you. We have our confidence in you because you have shown to us again and again and again you're a God of grace, you're a God of mercy, you're a God of love. That's why you sent Jesus. Yes. And we eternally will praise you for that grand yes, truth. Lord. My prayer is that every man in this room has appropriated his finished work by faith. And they are beginning their walk with you. Thank you for that privilege, and we ask your blessing in these men as we go our separate ways. May we all represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.